So we have been in a series uh, titled Ecclesia, as we have been studying what the Bible teaches us about the church. Uh, after Pentecost, uh, we uh, said that the Holy Spirit comes in power to equip us for the purposes of God, and that the Holy Spirit's ministry, part of that ministry, is applying um, what Jesus has accomplished for us in the cross and what the Father authored in eternity past, and the Holy Spirit is building the church of God. And so we began this series asking the question, what is the church? And in 1 Peter chapter 2, we find that Peter refers to the church not as a building and not as a program, not as a 501c3 nonprofit, but instead the church of God is the people of God. Um, it are, we are a, a holy temple being built brick by brick. We are a royal priesthood, right? And then we asked not only what is the church, that it is the people of God, but who are those people? And so we looked at Peter's sermon at Pentecost in which he presented the gospel of Jesus Christ and they, uh, the, the crowd responded, what must we do to be saved? And Peter's response was, believe and be baptized. And so we saw that the, church, the Bible's definition of the members of the church are all those who have turned from themselves and from their sin and trusted in Jesus Christ. It is believers who make up the body of Christ. But we recognized that that somewhat, uh, that, that univer- concept of the universal church, all believers of all time across all of the world, uh, can be oftentimes nebulous and, and have very little impact on our lives, which is why the New Testament assumes that every single believer is bound together with other believers in their vicinity in what we see as the church, which is a local assembled body of believers called out um, and called together to assemble for the purposes of proclaiming the, the gospel and building one another up. Well, when people come together, those people are going to somehow organize themselves in some manner. And so we saw in Ephesians chapter 4 that it's the collected body of believers that each and every one have a responsibility for the ministry, for the building up of the kingdom, for the maturation of the church itself. And so the ultimate authority belongs to the congregation, the body of believers. The Holy Spirit that is in you is the ultimate source of our body together. And we saw that the congregated body has the authority to wield the keys of the kingdom. But that body doesn't remain structureless. Instead, God, to help the believers for and equip them for the work of their ministry and to um, give guidance and direction for all of that power to declare the what and the who of the gospel to wield the kingdoms or wield the keys of the kingdom. God has provided a structure of authority within the church. And so we saw last week when we asked, how is it that the church is organized? It's a congregational body that has the authority that is led by pastors. And so we talked about the, uh, the, the role of pastors last week, and we're going to finish out this week, kind of come sliding into home, if we will, looking at another office in the church that the New Testament holds forth for us, which is the office of deacon, and then collectively we'll try to round this sermon out as we see then how the people and the pastors and the servants of the church, the deacons, all come together in this beautiful harmony that advances the gospel. So we see that there are people of God that are um, collected together for the purposes of God, uh, and that is the church. And there is an authority structure that God has placed on the church. But let's be real honest, right? If we are honest about our lives, we are a problematic people, and we oftentimes rebel against that organization. 
and that authority in our life. It starts when we're really young, whether it's that, that one-year-old who's smacking your hand away because he's convinced that he can walk on his own and he doesn't need your help anymore, right? Maybe it's that, uh, that child who wants to instead uh, set his own diet of Coca-Cola and, and candy, right? Or it's that teenage girl that decides that she's mature enough to set her own curfew, Or it's that adult who believes that she knows better than her boss. It's that young adult who wants to explore his own sexuality outside of the bounds of Scripture. It's the senior adult who knows better than their doctor. We all are problematic people, and we are oftentimes rebellious against the structures that God has placed in our life and the very people that are meant to be um, those that advise us and lead us in the path forward. This isn't the way that it's supposed to be in the church, and it's not the way that we see it in the church. And Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, gives us a beautiful picture of how a problematic people can come underneath the counseling authority of those that God has structured in their life, all for the advancement of the gospel. Look with me, if you will, in Acts chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. Luke writes, Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews, because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for the picture of your church that you have given to us in Scripture. Heavenly Father, oftentimes we want to turn from the pattern that you have established for us and look to ourselves, look to our own ingenuity, look to the way that um, the world structures itself. Instead of asking God, how is it that you want to address the problems that come up among us? How is it that you want decisions to be made in your church? Who is it that you want to lead? Who is it that you want to serve? Heavenly Father, I pray that this morning as we um, come to the end of this time of looking at the doctrine of the church throughout Scripture and throughout the New Testament, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would take hold of our hearts, take hold of my mouth, my lips, my mind. I pray that you would uh, bless this time, guard it and guide it, lead us to the foot of the cross, because it's in Christ that we find our hope, it's in Christ that we find our salvation, it's in Christ that we find our purpose and our power, and it's in his name we pray, amen. Amen. We are problematic people, but what we find in this passage of Scripture is that oftentimes God's provision for our problems really are His people. God's people are His provision for the very problems that come up in our life. In this passage of Scripture, in the very first verse, we find that the people of God have a problem. The people are growing, the gospel is advancing. I mean, if you think about the early New Testament, the church is growing rapidly. You go from about 120 people on Pentecost to Peter preaching that afternoon, and 
3,000 are saved and baptized. Let's talk about a, a high attendance Sunday, a church growth Sunday. You've got a massive problem. You have gone from a, what's really, a, 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 even in our standards today, a quote-unquote larger church, because let's be real honest, I think the last numbers that I looked, 95% of churches never reach 100 members. So a 100-member church is actually a large church based on the statistics. But you went from 120-member church to 3,000 in one day. The very next week, 5,000 men were saved and baptized. We don't know how many women and children there were in addition to that. So the church is growing at a rapid pace. And we know that wherever there are people, there are problems. Yes? Amen? Where there are people, there are problems. And where there are more people, there are more problems. And as the church is rapidly growing and we are faced with this problem in the church, it is a good problem of growth. But what we see in Scripture is that as these people are gathering together and the people and the number of the people are growing, there is a need for structure. Structure to face and to solve the conflict that inevitably comes up as people begin to live life with one another. And so what we have here in the problem in this is that as the numbers are increasing, as the church is, being, is rapidly growing, a problem occurs, namely that there is a group of people, some very vulnerable people, who are being overlooked. That happens in our churches. That's a common problem even for us today, is it not? That those who have been in a church for a period of time that are established in a body of believers that have friends and families and small groups and everything else, as the church begins to grow and we maintain our normal patterns, those new people who have come into our midst can very easily be overlooked. These Hellenistic Jews in, are these Greek-speaking Jews. They probably most likely didn't speak Aramaic or Hebrew. But they have come into Jerusalem and they have found themselves in contact with Jewish believers who spoke Aramaic and Hebrew who had known each other for years. And as the church is rapidly growing, these new believers who are coming in are being overlooked. Not maliciously, but regularly. What Luke tells us when he says is that these widows were being neglected, the, the, the tense of that verb says that it were repeatedly neglected. It was an often overlooked reality. And you have to remember these are very vulnerable individuals because in this day and age, there was no retirement package. There was no social security. There was no welfare. A woman without a husband or a son to provide for her physical needs was destitute. And so the church, knowing the blessing of the Lord and knowing the purpose that God had given to them to care for the orphan and the widow came together. And you'll find if you go back even just a couple of chapters in, in chapter 4, it was the practice of the New Testament church that there were people who had excess who were selling it for the purpose of meeting the needs of their new family in Christ. The problem is that there are certain widows who are not getting their daily food. And if that happens repeatedly, you've got a problem. You have a crisis. 
we have very similar problems. We may not be necessarily overlooking those, but we do need to take a, a, just a point of application from this. We need to be alert and aware, especially for those of us that have been connected to a body of believers, this body of believers, for any number and period of time. We have to be careful that we don't get so comfortable in our little spheres of influence that we neglect those that God are bringing on to us. Because as I was reminded recently by a sweet sister, even here in our congregation, people feel new a whole lot longer than the established people think that they're new. And it can be very simple that we connect with somebody for three or four weeks, and then we move on to the next new shiny visitor that's come in, and that new person never actually gets fully integrated into our body. We have to care for one another. We have to be intentional about building those long-term relationships. And so this problem arises in the church. The question, though, becomes, how is this infant church going to deal with that problem? The presence of the problem required a solution. And so the question becomes, who's going to solve the problem and how is it going to get solved? And so then we see the 12, the apostles, summon everyone together. And in this passage of Scripture, in verses 2 through 4, what we find is there is an establishment of priorities with the leaders. So there's a problem among the people, and the leaders pull everybody together, and they establish priorities. Now, the word deacon itself, or the title of the office deacon, doesn't show up in this passage of Scripture. The underlying root word, which is deacon or, or serving, shows up in this passage of Scripture. But what I believe that we see right here is the prototype of what will one day be the office of deacons. And we see these deacons called together, and we see eventually, by the time we get to 2 Timothy, or 1 Timothy, we see that there are very clearly two offices within the church, the pastors and the deacons. First off, we see the, el the twelve, the apostles, who are standing in very similarly for the office of pastors. And what we find both for pastors and deacons is that there, are, there is a role and there are responsibilities. And the pastors, the 12, are going to guard their priority. When we ask about the role of these leaders, these apostles, within the, or we ask about the role of them, what is the role of the church, is that the pastors are given the responsibility of being leaders of the body, leaders over the body. And we won't try to spend a ton of time in this because we talked about the role of the pastor last week. But look and you see what happens. When we talk about the role of the pastors, the apostles and the pastors have a certain authority. Their complaint arises within the congregation. Where does that complaint go? Where do complaints always go? Up. Until they get to the highest potential place to deal with those solutions. And so this complaint rises. It goes up through the congregation until it ultimately comes to the apostles. These apostles then have an authority to assemble the entire body. To call them all together. But there's also upon these apostles and upon every pastor not just an authority. There's an accountability. Because the assumption underneath this is that these apostles are still responsible to make sure that these widows under their ultimate care are taken care of. So they have an authority, but they have an accountability that comes with that authority. Wherever in Scripture we see authority, we see an accountability. And if the pastors are to be leaders of the body, then they are responsible for the body and everything that takes place within the body. 
The buck stops somewhere, and it stops with the pastors. The question, though, before the pastors is, is it best for the church as a whole for the pastors to focus on this need for benevolence and administration? And that's when the pastors not only, that's when we see not only their role of authority to lead the congregation, we also see a beginning of a breakdown of the responsibility given to these pastors. There's a role and there are responsibilities. Same in marriage. There is a role of the husband. There is a role of the wife that they are to play and they are to pursue. And then there are responsibilities, oftentimes that can be shared. But when it comes to the church under the role of the pastoral authority and the pastor's role of leading the body, pastors are to prioritize the spiritual needs of the people. Look what they say. It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, it moves on. We will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. The responsibilities of these pastors are to protect and guard and to minister to the spiritual needs of the people. First, in the prayers. Private prayers on the part of the pastor to seek God and to intervene for God. We see Moses getting away to pray for the people. We see Jesus getting away to pray for his ministry and even for his disciples and for you and for me even in John 17. But there is also a pattern and a practice throughout the book of Acts of the church getting together for the purpose of prayer. And it's the elders' responsibility, the pastors' responsibility, these apostles' responsibility to facilitate the ministry of prayer in the church, but then also the ministry of the word. Preaching and teaching, evangelism and discipleship, counseling. We talked last week about the role and the responsibility and the the place of pastors and that pastors don't have the authority to compel anyone's behavior. All we have the authority to from Scripture is to counsel you according to the Word. The pastor's responsibility is to know the Word, to study the Word, and provide wise counsel to the body of believers for the purpose of setting the direction and leading the church. And so where pastors are, there should be an ability and a freedom to protect and guard the study and the teaching and the preaching and the presentation and the counseling based on God's word. And what we see right here, and as a place of really personal application for you and for me, is we see these pastors, these apostles, say no to one thing so that they can say yes to something better. Are you one of those people like me that you find it really hard to say no? People just, you constantly find that you are constantly having a task after task, responsibility after responsibility, burden after burden placed upon you because you just can't find it in yourself to disappoint somebody else, and so you just don't want to say no. Think about these elders, these apostles that are right here. You're talking about women that they can put faces and names to in their mind who are going hungry. And people are asking for them to do something. And the pastors don't say, no, that shouldn't, be a prior- that shouldn't be a priority at all. But what the pastors say is, we cannot divert our attention from our first priorities, our bigger priorities, in order to implement the care of these widows. They are saying a no to say a better yes. 
And that is a, a way that I want to encourage you and me to think about our lives. It's a book that my wife has on her, on her uh, shelf, and I believe it's out of Dave Ramsey's ministry, but it's a, a woman who's taught, the title of the book I think is The Better Yes. And it's learning how to prioritize your life in such a way that you're able to say, what am, what am I saying? When I say yes to something, I'm saying no to something else. I'm taking time away from something. And I need to know my priorities and the priorities of these pastors so that they might say a better yes is they are going to prioritize the ministry of the word and the ministry of prayer, the spiritual needs of the people, all for the overall health of the people, but they don't neglect this need inside of their congregation. Instead, they, by way, based on wisdom and prayer, present before the congregation a means of coming up with a solution. And that is with the implementation or the, the commissioning of a new group of people within the church that are the deacons. Just like the pastors have a role and responsibilities, the deacons have a role and responsibilities. The pastor is to be the, and pastors are to be the leaders of the congregation. Deacons are to be leaders within the congregation. Their role required character. The apostles here say that they are to be men of a good reputation. They are to be men full of the Holy Spirit, which means that they are Christian believers growing in their relationship with Christ and the Spirit. They're to be men full of wisdom. Why? Because these men are going to be given a certain authority to do something within the church. The church is going to empower these men to begin not simply just handing out food, but the full administration of the food distribution ministry. They're going to be handed a purse full of money that they have to manage. And they're going to have to purchase the right food and do the right things. And so these need to be people, men, that the congregation has confidence in that we can trust these individuals and this isn't going to be a problem on the other way. We're not going to raise up a group of guys that are having to have the responsibility of feeding the Greek-speaking women who are going to get back at the Jewish-speaking or the Hebrew-speaking women by neglecting them in return. No, they're to be men of good character and good quality. And Paul talks about that quality and that character in great detail in 1 Timothy chapter 3. But these men have an authority and they have an accountability to the congregation to walk in obedience, to walk in wisdom, to walk in the Spirit. Their role is to meet the physical needs of the church. But their role is not, at any point, ever elevated in Scripture. The role of the deacon is never shown to be a check or a balance on either the authority of the pastors or the authority of the congregation. Instead, what we see here is that they are given very real authority and accountability, but that authority and accountability is limited their authority and accountability is not for the congregation as a whole, but for an area of responsibility assigned to them by the congregation. The responsibility seen right here and what we can see, I think, through the rest of Scripture and based on what is, is given to them is that they have a right and a responsibility to serve the people, to meet the needs of the people, both physical and administrative. When the, the disciples say that it is not right that we stop serving, preaching the word of God so that we can serve tables, that word tables there is an interesting word that actually has some double meaning. On the one hand, it's the table where we would gather around in order to eat. 
And so we're talking here about distribution of food to the widows, meeting the physical needs of the people of the church, taking the physical resources of the church, stewarding it in such a way that ministry can take place, that the the people can be served and that the body of Christ can be healthy. But it is also a word that is regularly used of the money changers table. The people who would receive the money and account for the money and would then be responsible for distributing the money. It's the money changers table. So there is this sense in which there's this double meeting where we can see in the responsibility of these deacons meeting the physical needs of the people that they have a responsibility to serve those physical needs, but also there's a place for administrative work of the deacon to take care of and steward the resources of the church. And the deacons were given both authority and accountability to ministering to the needs of the people and overseeing everything that was necessary to do so. So as a point of corporate application, what does this look like in our congregation? Our deacons in this church are raised up and called to the responsibility of stewarding the resources of this church. One of the ways that we do that is that we have four standing committees. In every church, in every organization, you have resources. Your people, your stuff, and your money. We have two types of people, our paid people and you, our members. So we have a personnel committee, we have a membership committee, we have a space and properties committee, and we have a stewardship committee. Our money, our stuff, and our people. Those committees are chaired by a deacon. They are built by believers who have a desire, have a ability to contribute to the stewardship of those areas. But where and when those deacons come together with the pastoral leadership and other deacons in other service areas throughout the church, they come together, then we have, hopefully, the most knowledgeable people of the stuff that we have, the people that we have, the money that we have, so that where and when the pastors cast a vision of, of a ministry, the deacons have the ability to say yes or no, we have the resources to pull it off. Somebody once said it this way. Think about it this way. If the pastors, if the church under the leading of the pastors decide, hey, listen, we're going to take a road trip to Philadelphia, the deacons don't have the authority to say, no, I think we should go to Lexington. But the deacons do have the authority to say, hey, listen, we don't have enough gas in the tank to get us to Philadelphia. Maybe we should go to Lexington. Does it make sense? We'll see that come together in just a few minutes. But the deacons here in our church have a primary responsibility of stewarding the resources of our church so that we have the ability to do what God has called us to do. They also have the responsibility to love and care on you to be connected with you, that they might know your needs and that we as a congregation might meet their needs. So we see the role and responsibility of of pastors. We see a role and responsibility coming out of the deacons in this body, in this passage of Scripture. We see the priorities of both. And when we see everything kind of come together in this, this case study of how decisions get made in the church, we see here a beautiful picture of the procedure of churches for making decisions. When we look at history of the church and structures of the church, as far as authority structures go, it's really interesting to me how it's not a one-for-one correlation necessarily, but if you look throughout history, It's interesting to see how church government and civil government so often seem to mirror one another. 
such that when the church came to strength and power under Constantine and the Holy Roman Empire, the Holy Roman Church was established, where there was a pope who was the spiritual equivalent to the emperor, and then there were bishops, and there were all of this different top-down authority structure that matched that. You see that happen in the magisterial stuff as well. Then you see democracy rise and the arrival of congregationalism. And so you end up inevitably with churches that very much kind of mirror and, and, and see throughout history this picture of even our American government where right, the people are the final authority and we hire a pastor who's the kind of equivalent of our, um, of our president and he is kind of running and making decisions. But as a check on that pastor, we elect deacons on this rotating basis and they are the people's representative to collect, live, collectively make decisions and lead the church. Now you're seeing an entirely new model that's not based on a, a, uh, a magisterial uh, model or a democratic model, but it's more based on the commercial model. can't tell you how many pastor-leader books are written from taking information and taking techniques out of the business world to apply them to the church, such that now we're even talking about it, our congregations as moving them from consumers to producers to shareholders. And we have this approach that we have a board of elders that functions like a board of directors, and you've got your pastor as CEO and staff-led and all this other kind of stuff, and we're drawing from the world in order to inform how it is that we are supposed to function as a church. But what we see here, it's not good. What we see here is this shared authority as one checks the other. And the picture that we have is this picture of biblical congregationalism. And you guys know I'm a, I'm a visual person, so this helps me. And so there's a picture. I don't know if we can pull it up. This comes from John Hammett's book on biblical foundations for church, Baptist churches. It's a real thick church book on how to organize churches. But he has this picture of how it is that the different power holders within the congregation relate to one another. Who's at the top? Well, even before this, there's Jesus Christ. He is the head of the church, right? But the church, the congregated body, is the body of Christ, given by Christ the authority to speak with the authority of Christ when and where we are congregated together. Hopefully, from that congregation, there are men who are qualified in all of the ways who desire to teach and desire to lead and have the moral character and competency to lead the congregation who are set apart as pastors who we saw last week have an authority to speak to the congregation. And the congregation and the pastors have a responsibility to check one another. I am accountable to you. If I ever go heretical and astray at this pattern in this pulpit, you have a responsibility to call me out on it. You have a responsibility to hold me in check, and I have a responsibility to lead and guide and direct you. And there is, we saw last week, to be this mutual respect for one another's authority. There's not one type of authority in the church that either one group has or doesn't, but there's a distinct shared authority, an authority from pastors to lead, an authority from congregation to make decisions. So there's this, that's why the lines between them are solid. But then there is this other group that is given a responsibility. We see here that what happens is the pastors, the elders, carefully and prayerfully come together to cast a vision before the people. The pastors have this authority and accountability to lead, but they don't have this ability as, as, as autocrats to make the decision. They instead, they do what? They pull the entire congregation together and say, here is our proposal. 
you guys, it's not good for us to start neglecting the teaching and the preaching of the Word of God. To be distracted by these essential needs. So we need help. So we want you to look among yourselves, find these qualified individuals that we will then together set apart. So the pastors make this proposal, not as autocrats demanding or generals ordering their obedient soldiers into battle, but instead as shepherds guiding their people based on their prayerful, careful consideration of God's word and implementation of wisdom. But unlike sheep who simply follow dumbly, the people of God are honored with an authority of their own so that the congregation is pleased by what they hear. They recognize in their own heart, in their own life, that's wise. That is a God-honoring thing to do. We want to protect your ability to preach the gospel, to teach the word of God, to shape and train us up. And so we can help guard that for you. We confirm the vision that you have cast for us. That, brothers and sisters, is the heart of true congregationalism. The heart of true congregationalism is not simply that the congregation has the final authority or is the final earthly authority for decisions to get made, but that the congregation is made up of spirit-filled Christians who recognize the Word of God, the wisdom of God, and the men and women of God to be raised up for God's purposes. The assumption of congregationalism is that you are growing. This is a function of wielding the keys of the kingdom. Who is it that is among us that we can put to this task? Who is it among us that we recognize in them a spiritual maturity? Who is it that we recognize in our hearts as one who hold the faith well, who manage their homes well? Who is it that we see with our eyes and with our hearts are called and equipped by God that we can appoint to this task. Biblical congregationalism, when we really truly understand it and follow it, forces, encourages Christians to grow up and mature. But the more that you put on a pastor or on deacons, or the more that pastors take from you, the more that deacons take from you, the more and more you become dependent upon us. My job is not to make you dependent upon me. My goal is not to make you dependent upon me. My goal, according to Ephesians chapter 4, is to equip you for the work of the ministry. And then we see the deacons set apart and put apart not as those who have an authority or an accountability to check the others, but to, to take their marching orders from, the, from the, the leaders and from the congregation and accomplish a task for the congregation. To guard the priorities of those pastors to preach and proclaim and teach and counsel the word of God. To meet the needs of the people. To protect the unity that is under threat as there is one group within the congregation that's a cultural minority and another group that's a cultural majority and to protect the unity that, so that the church wouldn't break apart and there wouldn't be bitterness and infighting and brokenness. Instead, as deacons are raised up and appointed to particular tasks that they can then 
move into and accomplish with accountability and authority. Not, we don't come back and second-guess every single one of their decisions, but we do hold accountable their decisions. If we're going to raise people up and we're going to put our uh, team together of people that we believe are qualified to, to, in our space and properties, we don't need to call a meeting to figure out what color of the carpet we need to lay. Our hope is that we have mature people making good decisions and we will trust them. And if they blow it, then we'll deal with that. But collectively together, look what happens. When the pastors are freed to protect the ministry of the Word of God. And there are qualified men raised up to specifically address the needs of the people. And the unity of the congregation is brought together. Look what happens. The word of God continued to increase. Why? Because the pastors were freed to preach and proclaim and to teach without a care, without a a fear inside of them of what's going on behind them. Are the people being taken care of? Is everything taking place that needs to happen? Is the administration taking place and is the food being distributed and are the people's needs being met? Am I being informed of what's going on and who needs prayer and who needs counsel and who needs what? The role and the purpose of the deacon is to say, Pastor, what can I do so that you are free to focus on equipping our people for ministry and evangelizing the lost? And when that happens, the church continues to increase. And it continues to increase so powerfully that the church even makes headway into the Jewish priesthood. When the church of God comes together under the plan of God, for the purposes of God, we function like no other body in the world. And we are equally dependent upon the one hope, the one faith, the one Lord, the one spirit, the one baptism. And we're going to prioritize that above anything and everything else. And we are going to be that temple that is built together not by our wants or our desires, our preferences, our patterns, color of our skin, our politics, anything else. But when we are put together by a higher power, the Holy Spirit who is building us together brick by brick, when we are functioning according to the responsibility and the privilege that God has given to each and every one of us to be royal, a royal priesthood, powerful things happen. And we become the church, the body of Christ in this world, ministering on behalf of Christ. See, where there are problems in the church, most often God's provision for our problem is us. God will raise up those in our midst to meet our needs if we will commit to grow up to serve, to step up, to step in. Because God's people are changed by God's gospel. Which is why we say that we desire to be a family of Christians, empowered by the gospel to gather, because we're not meant to live this life alone. To grow, because no one is, it, is what they were created to be yet to give of ourselves and our finances, our resources, our time, our talents, to give because we've been given so much in Jesus Christ. And collectively then, we go for the glory of God and for the good of the world because Jesus Christ has entrusted us with his mission.
not about a performance on a platform. It's not about a person with an office or a title. It's about a people changed by a message, empowered by a person to function in his name. The church of Jesus Christ is beautiful. 